Thank you guys for serving us. Thank you guys in the back. Thank you for everybody who brought food. Um, just sweet to, to be together tonight. Well, welcome, and tonight we're going to be back in 1 John. So if you would, open up your Bibles to John's first letter. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, just continuing our study of 1 John. If you're new tonight, we've been in this study for, I don't know how long, since last semester, the start of last semester. So you've missed quite a bit, but that's okay. Um, it's a sweet, been a sweet study, and we all know by now, or we should know, if you've been here, that this letter is about what? Assurance, yes, this letter is about assurance. John wants the church that he's writing to, and if he were here, he would want us today to have confidence, confidence that we know God, confidence that we are in an abiding relationship with Him. He would want us to flourish in that relationship with Christ. And with that, there's sort of a dark side. He wants us to avoid the pitfalls of this world because we're still here. We've got to learn to navigate now that we're in Christ. But it's all about assurance. And He's, he's taught us that assurance is strengthened in our lives as believers in two ways. What are they? Okay, Abiding. Two ways. What are the two ways? I think abiding is, is in one of those ways. Yes. What's that? Love. Okay, yep. Love is one of, one of the other ways there. So we could say it like this. All right, it's, it's, it's believing the gospel, number one. That's kind of the first way that our assurance is strengthened. We believe the gospel of his son. We lay hold of what John calls the word of life. The opening of 1 John. We lay hold of the word of life by faith. We come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And that faith, John argues, will eventually lead to the second way that assurance grows in our lives, which is we see the signs of, of life in our life, right? You remember that? The signs of life. There's evidence that we, have, that we have faith. There's evidence that we believe the gospel. Faith produces fruit. And like we said, the fruit, the, one of the fruits that's the greatest sign of this abiding relationship with Christ is the fruit of love. John argues that love, and specifically love for the church, is the absolute greatest evidence that someone really knows God. And when there's faith and love in the church, we know that the Spirit is there. We saw that last week. We know that the Spirit is among those people. He's the unseen agent in that assembly, and He's producing those fruits of faith and love in, in the church. And this means then that, that faith in Christ and love for His bride are inseparable. You follow me? Faith in Christ and then love for the church, love for His bride, are, are inseparable. Faith and love are so tethered together for John that he says they're two sides of the same coin, the same singular command back in chapter 3. We've already looked at this weeks ago. But look, look there again. Chapter 3, verse 23. John writes, And this is the commandment. Notice that. Singular. The commandment. What's the singular commandment? That we, number one, believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and, number two, love one another. 
just as he has commanded us. So singular commandment that we believe and that we love. That we lay hold of the word of life and that we exhibit the sign of life or in this case, love one another. John says the commandment is both faith and love. It's really believing the right things about Jesus and then loving his people. And he says it like this. He says there's one command with kind of two prongs because they're inseparable. And John's going to spend almost the rest of this letter from the end of chapter 3 on. So chapter 4 and chapter 5. He's going to spend the rest of this letter weaving in and out of these two themes of faith or belief and love. And he weaves in and out of them. He does it that way, even though it seems a little bit jarring for us, to show us that these themes are inseparable. He can transition in and out of these themes because they belong together. So we saw this last week in chapter 4. He starts with belief. He emphasizes, um, he emphasizes our belief or his, his emphasis on belief comes in the negative. He told us not to believe every spirit. Remember? Chapter 4, verse 1. He told us not to believe every spirit. That's everyone who claims to have a revelation from the Spirit. Instead, we need to be discerning about who we're listening to. We need to, to really lean into those who confess Jesus as taught by the apostles. But the point I'm, I'm drawing out right now is he starts chapter 4 with this focus on belief. But then down in verse 7, which we're, we're going to pick that up today, he shifts gears, and it's kind of out of nowhere. And he starts talking about love. He'll talk about love for a few verses, and then he'll shift back to talking about belief in verse 14 of chapter 4. Shift back to love in verse 17. Then he jumps back to belief in chapter 5, verse 1. Then right back to love in the same verse. Then right back to belief in verse 4. John's not trying to give us whiplash, all right? What, what is he doing? He's showing us that these themes are together. They're inseparable. The po- his point is that we can't claim to know God, we can't claim to trust God, and not love. He's saying if you really believe that God loves you as radically as you say He does, you will love. God will see to it that you do. And like we said before, John is, is driving these points home for at least two reasons, right? In John's day, there were those false teachers who were running around, they were claiming to know God, but they were greedy. They loved themselves and what the world could give them. You pop the hood on those false teachers, you get in their life, and you're going to see the flesh. You're going to see selfishness. They were uninterested in meeting the needs of the saints. They were harsh with other people. And so this church needs to know that love is inseparable from faith and that this kind of radical love will mark the true teachers of the gospel. They'll be hospitable. They'll sacrifice themselves for the good of the sheep. They'll say the hard things when necessary. They won't hold grudges or gossip or serve resentfully. They definitely won't be greedy. And so real shepherds like John they will be marked by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. They'll smell like the sheep. And John knows that that will help us and in this church that will help them identify the true shepherds, especially as these false teachers are running around. And it's going to help us too to be discerning. But there's another reason beyond that one that I think John weaves these themes together 
and why he spends so much time on love in these chapters. And the reason is this. Love is a challenge. We've talked about this before. Love is hard. Real love, I should say, is hard. We're not just talking about infatuation. Love isn't easy. In fact, our flesh would much rather give excuses for why we can't love than to actually love. And John knows this, and so he pivots back to the theme of love tonight to spend a little more time shepherding us in this area, because we need it. And it's super helpful. His heart reflects God's heart here. God wants us to love each other well in this church. He wants us to love each other well in boundless. He wants our commitment to each other to run deep. God desires that we be a ministry marked by generous forgiveness, marked by meeting needs, marked by openness, marked by hospitality, marked by patience with each other's weaknesses and a willingness to listen to one another, marked by a willingness to rejoice in the joys of others and to feel others' pain. According to John and the rest of the biblical writers, that's love and that's hard. So tonight, John's going to keep shepherding us to love each other. He's going to teach us about love. He's going to remind us of things he's already said, and he's going to take those things further and develop them out in this paragraph. And his goal, what John's goal is, is to set us ablaze tonight in love for each other, to motivate us and to equip us to love well. And, And we need that Because we're in a world that hates us, and we have to stick together, right? We can't be turning on each other and devouring each other. Because if we don't love each other, we're definitely not going to love our enemies. And God's glory is going to be detracted. His mission is going to be detracted on earth. There's a lot at stake in how we love each other right here in Boundless. And so... Instead of devouring each other, John wants us to to bend out the love that we've been shown by God. So even though that kind of sounds funny, I was talking to Bailey about that earlier, but Rich said it in the announcement, so um, that's going to be our title, Bending Out the Love of God. John wants us to learn, as as we've received love, to then bend that out, to pay it forward um, in this life. So if you would look look with me in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So that's our passage, these commands. You kind of see a book-ended commands to love each other. And then right in the middle of these commands are a bunch of of motivations um, to get after that. So I boiled down John's teaching here, John's teaching on love in this passage, into really five statements. And there, there are five statements that we're just going to say that are about our love for the church. Right? That's kind of the, what's what it's centered on. Five statements about our love for the church. 
And I think John's intent here in this paragraph is that, is that we get after loving, and, we, and it, those of you who are loving, that we excel still more in that, that we're encouraged by that, um, that we look to the Lord, we, we understand that his love for us even better with more clarity. And so we're going to look at these five statements about, about our love for the church in, in this passage. So initially, John starts off by reminding us that love for the church is God's gentle and central expectation. Love for the church is God's gentle expectation, and it's central. Now, I'll explain that. Look with me in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Love for the church is God's expectation for us, and it comes to us in this gentle way, but it's so central. And John opens this paragraph with this command, this, this kind exhortation that we, that we go on loving each other right here in the church. And if you, if you really look closely, you can, you can see, or maybe we should say you can hear, his gentleness kind of oozing out of this command, can't you? He calls us beloved right out of the gate. He's used this a couple different times in the letter, but, but it's, it shows up here a couple times, and it's, it's, uh, it draws our attention to this theme. It's a simple and yet profound title for us as God's people. We are beloved. We are the people, John is essentially saying, you're the people who are loved by God. You loved ones, let us love. He's going to blow this open at the end of the paragraph. This is kind of his short way, shorthand way of saying what he's going to say at the end. But he's getting at the fact that we've already experienced the love of God. And it's precisely as beloved ones, as, as God's loved ones, that God calls on us to love others. We can say it like this. He's loved us in order to make us lovers of others. And that's why it's so central and notice also that not only does he call us beloved, but John also includes himself under this command. And I, I love this. I think it just, it, he's modeling this kind of tenderness and humility um, that he's calling his people to, to exercise. John didn't have to do this. He could have easily said, hey, you guys need to love each other. And that would have been perfectly appropriate. That's commanded in other places in Scripture, just like that. You, second person, plural, you love. But he says, third person, plural, let us love. And so he includes himself in this. The apostle, the pastor, and the church member alike are all under the same joyful command. Because it's ultimately not John's command. This is the command of his Savior, given to him, to love like his Savior loves, to love like God himself loves. And that's where John goes here in this, in this verse. He says, we should love for a reason. So did you notice that reason that's tucked in there? Why should we love? John says it's because, or, or for, love is from God. So what does he mean? In what sense is love from God? Well, he's essentially saying that love originates from God. Love's not something out there floating around in the universe that God kind of ascribes to. Love is from him. 
He's the source of love. He gives love its definition. It emanates from God. So later in this passage, John will say that God is love. And he means that love is his nature and all of his, as defined by him, and all of his activities are carried out in love. Even his justice and his judgment are acts of his love. Love is his nature. God is love as defined by him. And when John here says that love is from God, he's getting at the fact that it originates from him, that it's, it's been modeled by him and given freely to us. And as we're going to see, God has given himself and will give of himself to the greatest extent imaginable. John Frame says it like this. He says that, that God will go to the uttermost to bless his people. And so love characterizes our God and it emanates from his nature. And for John, that's why we should love. Because our God loves. And he's loved us. So let us love and go on loving others here in the church, John says to us. And even, even his tone is tender. It's God's central expectation for those whom he's loved. So let's just consider this for a minute. Is God's love for you tenderizing you to the point that it's spilling over into love for others? Is God's love for you, is it tenderizing you to the point that it's spilling over into your interaction with boundless members? Ask yourself some questions. Are you quick to see the grace of God in the lives of others? Or do you more easily see their faults and weaknesses? Do you encourage and affirm with your words? Or are you more critical of others? Are you rarely aware of how your words are impacting other people? Are you aware and sensitive to the needs of others when you come to Boundless? Or are you hyper-aware of yourself and your own needs? And you expect other people to serve you. Do you try to understand people in conversation? Or do you seek just to air out your own opinions about stuff? Are you genuinely interested in how other people are doing? Or do you just want them to think that you're interested in how they're doing? So they have a higher opinion of you. Are you willing to share and be transparent with other people? So that they feel at home here and they learn from your own example of humility? Or are you too afraid of what others might think of you if you speak up? Are you patient with others whose sin might hurt you at times? Or are you easily offended and critical? Do you confront graciously and forgive freely? Or do you bury it and hold a grudge? So these kinds of questions are just, just helps to kind of get us thinking, right? Get us, get us mapping out. Okay, what is this generic command? What does this look like, boots on the ground? And just to be clear, I'm so encouraged by you guys. So don't think here, you know, as Pastor Clay is just like, I'm going to set them straight tonight, you know, and tell them how to love. Uh, I hope we grow in love, but, but I'm so encouraged by how you guys love each other and how you love this church. I mean, you see it week in and week out. I mean, even last Sunday, whenever that was, like over half of you came to the 8 a.m. service. Um, and so 
and you did that so you could be a blessing to other people. You sacrificed some, some well-desired sleep uh, to come out. You guys park far away so the other people can park closer. You serve in the more mundane areas of ministry to facilitate what happens here on Sundays. I constantly get people from the congregation telling me about how blessed they are by you guys. I hear you affirming and encouraging each other. I see you praying for each other after boundless. And so it's, it's truly a joy. I think Rich, Rich and I are so proud of how well you guys love and meet needs. But I want you, as we kind of work through some of those questions, if you, if you think there's an area of love that's particularly convicting for you, if you're like, woo, you know, when he said that, that really hit a nerve. Note that. Note that area. And begin to, to focus on that. Bring that before the Lord in prayer. Hone in on that. Get a plan for how you can grow to increase love in that area of your life. Because love is central. It's central. I may even go so far as to say God cares more about your love for other people than your exam. Or some other, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you being faithful in your exams. Definitely saying God cares about that. But this love is central. But we give lots of time and energy to prepping for those things that have deadlines and those other things, but we, get, we, we don't often give as much thought or intentionality to cultivating love in the imitation of God. But this is the most central and will bring us the most reward when Christ returns. And knowing this, knowing how central it is, helps us to follow through here when we realize that, that, that love is, is so important. It's one of the most important things we can focus on. And particularly because it's so central to God. It's from Him. It emanates from His very nature. And so when we ask, how can I become more loving to this person or in this area, we know that we are pleasing to the Lord and this is one of his top agenda items. So as John continues in this passage, he doesn't just tell us to love, but he also tells us why. And in fact, this is most of the passage. So that's instructive to us, right? He knows we need this kind of truth to motivate us. And that brings us to our second statement. John reminds us that love for the church impacts our assurance. Now, this isn't new. We've seen this before. Love for the church, its presence or its absence, will impact our assurance. So let's take the first one. It's presence, okay? It confirms, its presence confirms our new birth. That's what John says in verse 7. It confirms that we've been born again. Notice what he says. He says, love is from God, and whoever loves has been what? Man, either you're writing or you are tired. What happens? Okay. Whoever loves has been what? Born of God. Yes. Good. And knows God, he says. So he's saying his presence confirms that we've been born again. It confirms our new birth. And now notice how I said confirms, all right? I didn't say that love makes us born again. John didn't say that either. He didn't say that love earns us the new birth. It does not. 
What John says is that love shows that someone, listen to it, has already been born of God. We could kind of flesh that translation out a bit. It's in the perfect tense. And their new nature, then, their new nature is why they love. You tracking? This means, then, that, that there was one time in our lives when we did not love other people, at least not truly, not according to this sense of love. We may have acted like we loved. We may have done some selfless acts, but it was not motivated, get this, it was not motivated by the gospel. Because we didn't understand the gospel. We weren't humbled, we weren't tenderized by God's love for us. Instead, we loved in order to get something. And we, if we're honest, sometimes we still do, right? We love for our selfish ends, in other words. But now, God has freed us to have the capacity to love if we've trusted Jesus. He's already met all of our needs in Christ, and we're going to see that abundantly. He's already met all of our needs, and He's secured our destiny. He's even controlling every evil thing to work to our ultimate good, and so we are free to lay our lives down in love. There's nothing holding us back. We're free to die for the good of other people because we know we're going to be raised from the dead. And no one can love like that unless they've tasted the love of God in Christ. But if you have, John says, if you've been tenderized by the gospel and you're learning to meet needs because you're overwhelmed by what God has done for you, this confirms that you have been born of God. That you belong to Him. And that you have a new nature that has a new impulse to love just like your Father does. And get this, every time we die to ourselves to love others for Christ's sake, every time we do that, as little as it is, this is more and more evidence that we have new natures. Every time that you're enabled to resign your will and love your church members, love your roommates, love your family, every time you're enabled to do that, you are confirming that you really do know the Lord. You can be assured that you're really believing the gospel. You can be assured that you have, put it in a metaphor, the same spiritual DNA as your father. The gospel is really is making an impact in your life, even if it's small. And that is super encouraging. Because God did that, not you, as we're going to see. But... John doesn't just give us the positive, he also gives us the corollary of this. If we don't ever really love others, if our love for others is not motivated by the gospel, if we're not tenderized by Christ, this shows us something. The absence of love means that we don't know God. It means that we don't know God. No matter how 
passionately we say we do. John says it here in in verse 8. He says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Saying the same thing, it's just in a negative, in a corollary. He's using the same logic. It's just the negative side of the equation in verse 8. John's saying if we habitually don't love others, then we can know that we don't know God. Now again, John's not saying if we've struggled to love others, we don't know God. Or that if we don't love others perfectly, we don't know God. He's saying if the love for the church that springs up from the gospel, if that's not the pattern of your life, if that's absent from your life, then you don't know God. And as scary as that sounds, we've got a key in here. You might be thinking, yeah, I've never, even if you're new, maybe you're new to the church, you say, wow, come here, and wow, they just love me. I've never seen people love like this. Is this for real? Like, is this this genuine? You guys do this all the time? Or is this just kind of like Sunday morning show, you know? You think, yeah, I might do some good things every now and again, but Man, if I am honest, my life is consumed with myself. Like, that's all I think about. I constantly compare myself to others. I constantly live in perpetual jealousy or discontentment. I'm constantly critical, maybe if not in my words, in my heart. I'm constantly judging others and comparing myself. I don't ever really think about what others need because I'm so consumed with myself and yeah, sometimes I do something, some things for God, you know, but it's, it's really, I do it because so I want Him to like me. Or I feel guilty if I don't do it because I know I'm supposed to. And I think I'm a Christian because I asked Jesus into my heart a while back and, and I've been baptized, but Clay, I don't consistently love like that. Don't tune out John here. He is warning you that you're likely not a Christian. And that is the best news you could hear in this moment. It might sound terrifying, but that is good news on your ears. And why is that the best news? Because John wants you to see it. He does not want you to live in a delusion. He wants you to see it so that you're driven into the arms of God. So that you come to truly experience the free love of Christ. So that you will receive the new birth He has earned. So that you will receive a new nature with an impulse to love that comes from His Spirit. It's not perfect. But it's different. It's different than what you had before or didn't have before. Your solution, if this is you, is not to try harder to love so that God is happy with you. That is the wrong response. It's not to try to quickly, anxiously love so that you can relieve your conscience in this moment. That's just perpetuating the cycle of delusion. The response is to realize You don't know the Lord. At least not yet. 
that you don't know the gospel like you think you do. And the response is to humble yourself and seek to know this Christ. Seek to really understand how bad you are. Don't run from that. Press in there. Seek to know the great depths with which He's gone to redeem. And we're going to go there in a second. Why? Because it's His love for you that enables you to love. Only until you receive it can you love. And you have to receive it with empty hands. It's when we experience His love for us in Christ then and only then are we tenderized. Does our heart of stone become a heart of flesh? And that is gloriously good news for those who are under conviction, who are in doubt, who do not love. Right? Flee to Christ and entrust yourself to His love. Before we leave this statement, let me just say one more thing about what John's doing here on this sort of negative side, this absence of love. He's issuing a warning to the unconverted, yeah. He's trying to help them see, but he's also helping genuine believers see who's true and who's false, especially in the teaching department. And he's trying to help them see that based on the presence of love or its absence. Okay, So remember those false teachers that were plaguing this church. They claimed to know God, but under the hood they really didn't love. And that's a huge observation for us. Especially, we talked about this last week, but all the digital sermons out there, all the people coming into your convocations and campus communities. John's reminding us that we need to look carefully at the lives of these pastors and podcast hosts to verify if they truly know God or not. You think, well, I'm not, how do I do that? Like, they're up on stage and they're in and out in one week or, or whatever. Well, if, if they love like this, there's going to be some low-hanging fruit. Their lives are going to be marked by radical love for the saints, as John says. Not in word only, but in deed. And it will often flesh itself out, are you ready for this? In a radical commitment to their own church and leadership team. Low-hanging fruit. They'll smell humble. They'll be sincere. They'll roll up their sleeves and shepherd the saints that they've been entrusted with. They'll be leery of being a pastor to the world. They'll want to focus more on their own sheep at home rather than in the blogosphere or the podcast world. They'll feel this tension and they'll probably articulate it if they are abroad and they are teaching in these larger venues. So John's point in these verses is that love impacts our assurance. If we see in our hearts a tender spirit that wants to love others, a spirit that's broken when we don't love others, if we see little acts of love that are born out of a love for all that Christ has done for us, then we can know that we're born of God. And our own growth and assurance becomes an incentive. It becomes a motivation to love other people. But that's not all that that love does for us. 
Okay, that's our second statement. But our, our third statement tonight, John reminds us that love for the church increases our intimacy with God. Again, this is a, a, a theme we've seen before in 1 John. Obedience, in this case, love, love for others, love for the church, increases our intimacy with God. You might be saying, well, where'd you get that? Um, look, maybe you're not saying that. You're just writing the, writing the outline heading. You haven't had time to think that far ahead yet. <laughs> I'll wait. I have a long sermon, so I'm trying to get through this quickly. <laughs> Sorry, I told you that ahead of time. Love for the church increased our intimacy with God. So where'd you get that from the passage? Well, it's from this little phrase that's easy to miss if we're reading fast, if we're not paying attention. Notice John doesn't just say that love shows that we've already been born of God. Okay, he says that. Love shows that we've already been born of God. But it also shows something else. What does it say? Yeah, that we know God. Do you notice anything different between those two verbs? Has been born of God and knows God. Yes. No, I thought you said knows he's present. But yes, knows is present. That's right. It's in the present tense versus the other one was in the perfect tense, right? In Greek. I'm terrible with English uh, grammar, by the way, which is highly ironic. Um, so in Greek, it's in the perfect tense. And this knows is in the present tense. Now, under normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't make a big deal about this point. I wouldn't turn it into a separate point. But the fact that John changes tenses here caught my attention. And I think he intended that too. Notice he didn't say, whoever loves has known God in the perfect tense like he did with the verb that came before it. Instead, he shifts to the present. Whoever loves knows God. Now, I think it's fair here to see that John recognizes that when we love others, it doesn't merely confirm that we've known God. It does that. It doesn't just do that. Because he could have said it in the perfect tense, right? That we have known God, and we still do, right? But it influences our current knowledge of God. In other words, when we love, we know God or we know Him more. We know Him better when we're given to the practice of love. That's interesting. You don't often think in those categories. So we need to ask that question. How does that work? Right? How does it work? How do we gain more knowledge of God when we love other people? Well, think through this with me. We learn to appreciate and treasure God's great love for us. Why? Because we realize how challenging love can be. Just living for yourself all the time, gratifying your own impulses all the time, rolling over for your flesh, it's not that hard. But when by the power of the Spirit you begin to stand against your flesh, to love others, you begin to see, wow, this can be very difficult. This costs me a lot. And we begin to realize how costly love is when we have to die to ourselves to serve others. And it gives us a tiny glimpse, a tiny insight, tiny insight into how it costs God to love us. When we realize how hard it is to love, we're that much more thankful that God went to the uttermost in His love for us. So that's one way that it increases our intimacy. 
But there's another way. When we, when we begin, and I emphasize begin here, when we begin to identify with the sufferings of Christ, that increases our intimacy with Christ. Identifying with His sufferings via love. We don't often make that connection, love and suffering, but often that's there. And when we suffer with Christ, and for His sake, something happens. He draws near to us, the Scriptures say. He comforts us. He supplies us with inner strength and power when we're absolutely beat. He gives us His joy. He gives us an awareness that He is near to us, that heaven sees our secret sacrifice, and that God is pleased and will produce the fruit that He intends by our death. So when we love like this, we begin to identify with Christ's sufferings. And finally, when we love, then we become more aware of, we might say, reality. How things really are. We become more aware of how fragile we are. More aware of our inability to do anything without God. More aware of our need to depend on Him, more humble, more aware of Christ's presence in the situations of my day. And so when we love, we know God better. Like John says here, our intimacy with God increases. And I don't want you to miss this because this is an incredible motivation for me to spin myself for the sake of other people. To spend and be spent for Christ's sake it is a privilege. And it's the paradox that Christ describes. He, he talks about when we lose our life for His sake, what happens? We find it. Yeah, when we die, we live. We find true life, the meaning of life, the purpose. And it comes from knowing God. So that's our third statement about about love for the church. And and it brings us to our fourth, really the heart of this passage. You might think of it as the grand motivation of this passage. It's the grand motivation to love an unlovely church. So John reminds us that love for the church is based on the magnitude of God's love toward us. Based on that, it springs up from it. It's sourced in it. And it doesn't happen without it. Love for the church is based on the magnitude of God's love toward us when we least deserve it. Look with me in um, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now here's a parallel statement. It runs, it runs in parallel with verse 9. You can compare the two of them and you can see the parallels. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you see the parallels. He starts with a kind of a definition of love or, or, or a forward pointer. In this, is, in this the love of God is going to be manifest. How? 
that God sent his son. And then in verse 10, and this is love. How? Pointing forward. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And I'll also send his son. So the sending of his son is the, is the core of both of those verses. It's pointing forward to that. So what's John doing here in these parallel statements? Well, he's like pulling us up close. He's taking our chair and he's sliding us up to the table so that we see the love of God. He's describing its magnitude toward us. But why is he doing that? Because he wants it to motivate us to pay it forward. And he knows that's the only way that it's going to happen. He wants to motivate us to love like we've been loved. But to do that, we've got to understand exactly how we've been loved. We have to come to know, like John says, come to know and to believe the love that he has for us. So John tells us um, how the Lord's loved us. And just to keep it easy to follow, because there's some intricacies here, I'm just going to draw out a few attributes of God's love that we can see in these verses. All right, They're not going to be on the screen. So what kind of love is this? Well, initially, it's an initiating love. It's an initiating love. Who took the initiative in this text? God or man? God. God did. John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. And then in verse 10, he repeats it again. And this is love, dot, 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 that God sent his son into the world. Since God is love, and since love comes from God, he's its source and definition, it only makes sense that he initiated and accomplished our salvation alone, by himself, no help. In other words, his love took the first step toward us, and it and it went to completion. He didn't wait on us to ask Him to love us, to call out to Him to love us, to become lovely. He initiated it. And that's significant. So it's an initiating love, number one. But notice He didn't just say He sent His Son. He says that in verse 10. But God said in verse 9, He sent His only Son. You see that? He sent His only Son. Some translations may say only begotten Son. But that is significant. It means that God's magnificent love is, number two, right, it's costly. It's a costly love. So it's initiating love and it's a costly love. And it's an infinitely costly love. Because this is His only Son. Now why does John use this word? Well, it's important to realize that he is most likely echoing something in the Old Testament here. Isaac was Abraham's only son. In the Greek translation, this word is used of him. There's lots of parallels. Isaac is the unique son of promise. Everything's riding on Isaac. And God says, go kill him. 
But I think the thing that, that's most significant is that Abraham, in the story, it's, it's drawn out, Abraham dearly loves his only son. And so here, that Jesus is God's only son shows that he is unique and uniquely loved. There's no one like him. He is the highest love of the Father. That God is willing to send himself, the second member of the Godhead, The Father is willing to send the Son. This tells us something about the love of God. It tells us that God is infinitely generous. That He is infinitely sacrificial in Himself. It tells us that God will literally spare no expense to redeem His people and make good on His promises. There was no pain too great to cause God to pull back from sending His Son. Think about this. Christ is the highest treasure of heaven and earth and had been the eternal object of His Father's love before He ever came. And His Father was willing to give Him up, to crush Him, And to pour His wrath out on His Son in order to redeem us. God's sending of His Son is the greatest demonstration of His commitment to His people. And it's the guarantee, Paul will say in Romans, it's the guarantee that God will give us everything else because nothing else is more valuable than Christ. And He's already given us Christ. So it's breathtaking. God's love is costly. It's initiating before that. But that's not all he says. His his love also accomplishes something. And John was going to go on to say his love brings us to life. So we'll call this one a life-giving love. A life-giving love. John says that the goal in the love that sent his son was that, in verse 9, that we might live through him. You see that? God's goal. He sent him. His love motivated him to send his son. Why? What's the ultimate goal? That we might live through him, according to verse 9. So what's he talking about? He's talking about Christ's own life that's transferred to us. He sent his son to obey the stipulations of the covenant perfectly. When we could not. We had no hope of ever being obedient. He sent his son to pass through death and experience the covenant curses, and to come out in resurrection life on the other side of the grave. And John says that all this is given to us. This life. This eternal life. We have life in His name. We have life through Him and because of Him. And it starts now, internally, right? Made alive on the inside. We're changing day by day to become more like God Himself. It's progressive, it's slow, it's painful, it's rewarding. But that's happening internally. But that's headed toward something else, 
something far more glorious, the climax, which is resurrection. Resurrection life. Life from the dead. To live fully in the new heavens and the new earth. And John's point is that God's love is why we get that gift. Because God is love. And that's how great His love is. It's a love that's life-giving. It makes us alive. Now, as incredible as that is, John's not finished describing the love of God. Next, he wants to get, get into our kind of thick brains that we did nothing to merit this love. Meaning, God did not love us because of something in us, or as he puts it here, because we loved Him first. He says, God's love is unsolicited love. So, that's our, our next one. It's an unsolicited love. Or you could say it's a free love. But I like unsolicited because it puts the emphasis on the negative, And that's what John does here. John says, in this is love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And this is where my circuit breaker trips, okay? It's like I can't, like all this other stuff, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. I mean, it's glorious. My soul's like bursting, you know, with it. But this one, it's like, I, it's like it can't, it's like overload. Circuit breaker overload, it goes off. Like it's, it's hard for me to, we talk about this a lot. We thank the Lord for this as we rightly should. But that God would love like this, like everything we just talked about, for an unworthy people is breathtaking. And it's almost incomprehensible. John's point is that our love for God, or really lack thereof, it did, that did not motivate God to love us. It didn't motivate God to save us. In fact, he says we did not love God. We hated God, in other words, in our hearts. We came out of the womb with a heart that was hard and it's, the desire was to be our own gods, to answer to no one, to give what we want above all else. Our first parents rebelled against his purposes and we have been rebelling ever since. And if you think you're too bad off for God to love you, if you think you're too far gone, can I just encourage you for a minute? You don't even begin to know how bad you are. Not what you were expecting, were you? You don't even know the half of it. You are way, way worse than you think. But get this, God doesn't need you to be lovely to love you. In fact, you're not lovely. And there's no possibility of you being lovely apart from Him. God loves his own people from himself. From his own nature. Which is love. Just like John told us. It emanates from him and it cleanses and transforms the unlovely in and through Jesus. And we think, how? How, 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 how? Can he do this? How can the holy God love justly? 
How can he love the unlovely and be righteous? When judges let off wicked people and they don't get punished, something revolts within us. How can he do this? Wouldn't his justice be in question by loving the guilty? By loving those who deserve punishment, but were let free? Well, that's where his, this final description comes in. God's love is not blind to sin. It's a propitiating love. It literally cost him everything for our sin. It says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is not blind. It does not sweep sin under the rug. It deals with it. Propitiation. Now, that's a big word. Okay? I've turned it into a participle. Propitiating. All right? But we've seen it before in chapter 2. A long time ago. But propitiation is an Old Testament word that means wrath is absorbed so that forgiveness can be granted. Wrath is absorbed, punishment is made, atonement is made, so that forgiveness can be granted. And here John is saying that Jesus is that for his people. Which means then, all of God's wrath that should have come against his people, all of that was poured out on his Son in our place. And we're talking about the entire cup of God's wrath. Like all of it. Without any drops left over. Like one little drop of wrath on you here, one little drop of wrath on you there. No. That would be an insufficient atonement. Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath. And God sent him to do it. The son he dearly loved. His only son. This means that not just every sin you've committed, not just every sin you commit today, and not just every sin that you will ever commit, but the entirety of your sinful nature and every false motive is punished in Christ and completely forgiven by the Father. Because of the sufficiency of Christ. Now all that's left for you is the full, unabating, unrelenting love of God toward us in Christ. The love that works all things for our good. The love that will cherish us for all eternity and lavish us with kindness. And it has begun now. God loves you like He loves His Son. And that is astounding. That is humbling and worship-inducing, isn't it? So John knows 
we got to know that. You cannot doubt that. If you're going to love, as awkward as it feels, to be loved with that kind of intensity, fervency, and consistency. But if you won't receive that freely and unworthily, if you won't receive it, you won't love. But if you do, it's a game changer. All right, that brings us to our our final statement, and we're going to close here. It really is really kind of ending where we began. But John says that the love for the church, our love for the church, is our inexcusable obligation. And this is where he's been angling. He starts soft, you know, with this nice, soft, gentle expectation, and then he ends by saying it's our, it's our obligation. John ends where he began in this passage by telling us to love each other, but he says it a little bit differently, and I don't want you to miss this. He says, essentially, if God has loved you like that, then you ought to love each other. Look with me again at the end of this verse. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. So, sometimes I mean, translations, I mean, they, they can just kind of sound a little bit weak. Now, I don't mean that as a slam, because I think ESV is like amazing. NASB's amazing. They're way smarter than I am. But sometimes when you're reading the original, it's just like, whew, he said it really intensely there. So let me give you the kind of a wooden translation that's not smooth in English. He said, beloved, if God has loved us so, meaning like if God's loved us like that, like we just heard, we ourselves are also, we ourselves are also obligated to love each other. That's a wooden, wooden way of rendering that. We're obligated to love each other. In other words, John wants us to see that in light of the infinite love that we've been given, it means that not loving the church is not an option to God. Is that fair? Or we could say it like this. Loving the church is our duty. No matter what the church has done to us. We must love. Meaning, God won't let us give any excuses not to love the church. And we try, right? We try to give the excuses. Well, the church hurt me in the past, or it did this, or whatever. So I struggle to love the church. I hear that all the time. And I'll be patient with that, like, yeah, let's unpack that, let's think through that. But guess where this is channeling? Yeah, you're obligated. Sorry. Are you claiming Christ? Then we've got to work through that. We've got to work through that so that you can love the church. It, may be, it might be a reality in your, in your experience, but you have to deal with it so that you can love the church. Well, I just can't forgive them for what they did to me. It was so bad. Not an option. Imagine if Christ said that. Oh, because your sin was so bad, I just can't 
Can't love you. I'm not, I'm not coming. I'm going to stay in heaven because you hurt me too bad. But we say that all the time when it comes to our love for each other. And that reveals we don't understand the depth of the gospel. And we try to let ourselves off the hook. We think God's going to say something like, oh, I'm sorry he sinned against you, and you know what? I'm going to give you a pass, and I'm not going to hold you accountable for your lack of forgiveness. We think like that. I talk to people who function that way. But that's not true according to John. We are obligated to love, which means we are obligated to forgive. We are obligated to be patient. We are obligated to return evil with good. We are obligated to release every form of bitterness. We are obligated to seek resolution to our conflicts. We are obligated to confess whatever needs to be confessed on our end. In other words, love is our duty if we're going to claim that kind of love for ourselves. If we're going to receive the infinite love of God, He will not let us play the victim card very long. Not when He spared no expense. He loves us too much. There's no freedom in the victim card. Just more and more discontentment, more and more destruction, more and more... But there is joy and life in death, in loving others like we've been loved. So we're going to end here tonight. What a staggering passage on loving the church. Five statements that John intends to set our love for each other on fire. Right? What a privilege. And it's a joy to serve with you guys and to be loved by you and to be able to love you. It's a privilege to to be beloved by the Father and to bend that love out for others. Let's pray. Father, all we know to do is say thank you and forgive us. We say thank you for how you've loved us and we confess we don't, we're just scratching the surface. But we do see you've opened our eyes to behold the glory of your love for us in Christ. It's tenderized us, not as much as we want, but it, does, it has. We're different than who we used to be. And we praise your name for that. And we say forgive us, Lord, because as, even as I prepared this lesson, I'm sure as they heard it, there were attitudes and things that we've let, let go, we haven't, we haven't checked those, we haven't confessed those even to you. And we ask for forgiveness now for that. We know that it's full and free in Christ. And we pray that you would help us hone in on that one, one step forward in this area of love. We're not going to try to change us all at one time. You don't, you don't change us that way. You, you put your finger on an area and you help us grow in that area because you're a good shepherd. So I pray that whatever area is most burning tonight for these students, these 
young adults that you would um, give them clarity, help them see your great love for them in Christ, and uh, begin to work actively on that. And we thank you, we thank you for how, how you love us, and we pray that we would be a little glimmer of that um, now, and that you would use that for your purposes as we um, bring you glory on earth, that all the world might know that we're your disciples. The gospel will go forward through us because of it. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.